Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 22. This is the word of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he, cu- and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the, sea, in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have his fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, your earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love for the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which you have, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. It's a wonderful accent, my goodness. Uh, man, almost forgot my sermon just listening. Um, let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, thank you so much that you will continue to reveal yourself to your people, that you are faithful to your people and that you deliver your people from their enemies, even though technically, Lord God, we are no different from them. The only thing that makes us distinct, Father, is your electing grace. So, Father, help us see your beauties through this passage. Help us see the gospel through this passage and apply this passage to our hearts, Father. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus through the life of Moses 
covering the highlights of Moses' life. And right now, we're in the passage that comes right after the crossing of the Red Sea, right? The most climactic part of the book of Exodus, and one might argue the whole Old Testament, was last week. And so some of you are thinking it's all downhill from here. Uh, There's nothing more exciting than that. But, uh, well, that's not exactly right, is it? But actually, what happens right after the, the Exodus itself is not really familiar to us. We know some events in the book of Exodus, um, the Israelites eating bread from heaven, but then they grumble, and then God feeds them too much meat, and then there's meat coming out of their nostrils, and then there's a pillar of cloud and fire, and then they finally get to the Canaanites. You know, there's a lot going on. But right after the Exodus itself, we miss that there's a narrative break. It's almost like they stopped in their tracks, and then they sang this song. Right? They stopped everything that they were doing and they simply sang this song. This was a worship session to the Lord. They simply begun to worship. Right? So that's arguably why they were taken out in the first place. Right? They were taken out, remember when, what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3? They were taken out not just for their own comfort. Uh, their deliverance from slavery wasn't just for them per se or their, their material possessions or their new land. No, the primary reason why they were taken out is so that they might stop worshiping Pharaoh and start serving the real God, the Lord. That in other words, the main reason of their exodus was actually so that the Lord might be their God and they would be his people. Worship was the very purpose of the exodus itself. And so it's appropriate that they began in song. Right? So there's three things I want to point out from this passage today. First, why they sang? Why did they sing the song? Why did they suddenly stop and sing this uh, praise song? Second, um, w- what they sang? What is the content of the song itself? And third, the songs backwards and forwards, or how the song points us back and how the song points us forward. So, first, then, why did they sing this song? Well, look at the first verse. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So why did they sing? The most basic reason, again, is worship. But not just a, any kind of worship song. It says that I will sing to the Lord, direct myself to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He's just one. He's just exalted himself among his enemies. He has just, in other words, uh, thrown all of the Israelite enemies as if they were his own enemies, and he's put them under the Red Sea, right? So the horse and his rider, verse 1 continues, he has thrown into the sea. So this song, in a lot of ways, is just a summary of everything that came before it. This song is reflecting upon the victory that God had just won for the Israelites, right? What happened before this? Again, the Exodus. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea. The sea had parted so that they might cross it. And then the Egyptians, they were hardened. And so they chased after them, Pharaoh and all his soldiers and all the chariots, right? And then when they were in the middle of the Red Sea and after Israelites, the Israelites have passed through, they suddenly couldn't go any further. They were stopped in their tracks because God slowed them down. And then the sea that was parted started to come over them and they were completely routed. They were completely destroyed. So this is a song that was celebrating what just happened. They had to stop everything that they were doing. They saw what happened and they saw the Lord God has triumphed gloriously and they can't help it but sing this song. They needed to celebrate it. When you see something beautiful, worshipful, something that you are celebrating, you can't help it but sing about this, right? 
This, in other words, uh, takes care of that old myth that says that we're primarily pragmatic, efficient, productive creatures and not primarily worshipful creatures. Well, what do I mean? Well, in the past, uh, before I was a Christian, I was really, really frustrated every time my parents made me go to church on Sunday. I went to a Catholic church, and they also put me in an international Christian school, Espeja. And every Wednesday, they had a chapel service, and I was so frustrated. And every Sunday, they woke me up early in the morning, and I was so frustrated. I was thinking to myself, you know, Christians, they're constantly saying that they're loving people, they're serving people, but then they stop all productivity, and they just sing songs. They take one day of the week when I could be sleeping, when I could be productive and serving my people or something, you know, as if I had some high idea in my mind. Uh, and then they're just stopping and just singing songs and they can't even sing in the right note. Come on. What's the use of that? There's nothing productive, nothing efficient about singing songs to God. Why don't you just make the world a better place? Serve your neighbor, right? Be, be productive with your time. Why? take apart one day and simply worship God and call it the Sabbath day. I, don't, I didn't get it. I completely didn't get it. I didn't realize that God was our highest joy and we're simply celebrating. I mean, this isn't, this isn't just a, a religious thing, right? This is common in ordinary life. You know, uh, last year, I was uh, celebrating our, uh, my graduation from the University of Edinburgh and, I was, and my family were hanging out at Edinburgh and then we decided to take a holiday to Paris, France for a couple of days before we went back to Jakarta. And lo and behold, this was July last year and I don't know if you guys remembered what happened in July last year, there was the World Cup. Not only was there a World Cup, but France was in the finals. Not only was France in the finals, the finals was in July. So basically, I was in Paris where the French team was playing against the Croatian team in the finals, so all of Paris was watching the same game, right? There were screens everywhere, everybody's watching, everybody's with tune. As an Indonesian person, I was only very a little bit excited, but everybody else, they were just gung-ho for it, right? And so we were watching the game in Paris with all the other French people, and they were completely excited for their team, and guess who won? The French, come on, what happened, you guys? You don't remember, you don't care about the World Cup. The French team won. The French team won, and then the whole city, whether you're old or young, rich or poor, it's almost as if everybody poured out into the streets. They didn't just win over Croatia, they destroyed them, right? It was 4-2. And like most of the goals were scored in the first round, right? They were just going crazy. And so the whole city was intensely celebrating. They were singing the national anthem over and over and over again. They stopped all their work and they simply sung in celebration for two whole days. And at one point, we were just going out and we were just trying to get some dinner, maybe, I don't know, do some French things like eat a croissant. But they saw me in my nonchalant walking and they looked at me and they rebuked me. Well, this one guy was like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, we just won. Don't you know that we just won? He thought I was French. I took it as a compliment. Uh, we just won. What's wrong with you? You can't just walk and sing with us, right? But I told him I wasn't French, and then, okay, fine, he understood, he left me alone. You know, if you were French, there was this sense that if you continued working, you were doing it wrong. It was not appropriate at that moment to just continue working, continue your productive lives, right? You needed to pause and simply celebrate what in the world just happened. You needed to celebrate it. And they were singing the same song over and over again, and they weren't bored of it, right? In the same way, Look at what's going on here. Verse 1, the, the first lyrics of the, the song, the opening lyrics, is repeated at the last verse by Miriam and the woman, right? 
So in verse 21, the end of our passage, it says, And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In other words, this song had become part of the Israelite tradition. They were meant to celebrate the Exodus over and over and over again and therefore worship and celebrate the God of the Exodus. This was meant to be part of their tradition, their liturgy. They're continuing it. But it's no longer repetitive to them because this was real. This is a real triumphing on their behalf. They could now worship their God in awe. And notice as well, look at verse 2. Notice how this is talking in the first person singular. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Notice the first person singulars. I will praise him. I will exalt him. He's my strength and my song and my salvation, right? But notice who's actually singing the song. It's not just Moses. It's not just an individual. It's verse 1 again that tells us Moses and the people of Israel were singing this song. In other words, this was a corporate singing reality. This was a corporate worship event. Everybody was singing together because there's something about your enjoyment of something, your celebration of something that makes you simply want to share that enjoyment with somebody else, wants you to praise that enjoyment with somebody else. You know, C.S. Lewis says that uh, when you're praising something, your praising of something that you're enjoying isn't an add-on to your enjoyment as if enjoyment and praising are two different things. He's arguing that you're glorifying something, you're praising something. This is an expression of your enjoyment. This is a consummation, a fulfillment of your enjoyment. It's why when you first fall in love with a girl, you're annoying all your friends because you can't stop talking about her, right? It's why when you, when you love a piece of art, you can't stop talking about this piece of art to other people. You can't help it but exude and praise over and over again. And if you were a, fr- a fan of the French team on that night in July, and you were watching from Jakarta in a lonely apartment room in your pajamas, yes, you may be jumping up and down. Yes, you might be cheering on. But there's something inside you that says, I wish I was watching with somebody else. I wish I could share this with somebody else. Maybe if I were watching in a sports bar in my friend's home, this would feel really different. I want to share this. And so you substitute that sharing with a tweet or an Instagram post. I can't believe they won because you're lonely, right? So that's what happens. There's something about enjoying something, worshiping something that makes you want to gather around and celebrate together. And therefore, friends, this is why we come on Sunday together, right? We can't just go to church in the comfort of our homes. We can't just worship God in our own private time in a way that we want to, right? Because worshiping God becomes the apex of your week. It's you're celebrating what he has done for you, right? This is Sunday gathering shouldn't be something a chore to you, but it should be just like the French team celebrating the World Cup, in a sense. You're celebrating God, and you can't help it to share the glory of God with others around you. And that's what Sunday service is. That's why we gather here on Sunday together. It's the highlight of the week for us. But the moment we say that, friends, the moment we say and see that this is a song of celebration, and this is a worship song that that celebrates God, we run into a problem. We run into a problem because this isn't just a worship song that celebrates God in the abstract. Nor is it worshiping God because of his love 
over, or his wisdom or his compassion or his mercy. Us modern people love that. We love worshiping God for his love and his mercy. No. This song specifically and particularly is worshiping God because of his vengeance, his judgment. Look at verse 3 again. The Lord is a man of war. And L-O-R-D in caps there, that's referring to the name of God, Yahweh, which literally means the self-sufficient one, the self-existent one, the sovereign one. The sovereign one is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And notice what is the song summarizing? It's summarizing the destruction of God's enemies. Pharaoh's chariots, verse 4, and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths of a stone. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatest greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This isn't just a celebration song in the abstract. This is a celebration song of vengeance, of justice, of the wrath of God overcoming not just Israelites' enemies, but but God's enemies, right? And so you'll find modern commentators often would say, you see, we can't worship in the same way anymore. This is just the, the outdated, violent God of the Old Testament. This is just a, a, a song that is a religious expression of an antiquated, violent, primitive people. And we can't worship God in the same way. This is just the past. We are modern people. We're different now. But I want to suggest that this isn't as primitive as we might think, Right? Because friends, put yourself in their shoes. Tim Keller says, you know, in one of his sermons, the reason why we have a problem with the wrath and justice of God today is because we don't suffer generational, systemic, violent injustices against us today, right? We live in modern skyscrapers, in air-conditioned malls, or in beautiful little suburban homes, right, with a white picket fence, we're comfortable. And because we're comfortable and no violent systemic oppression comes against us, we therefore assume that everybody's just basically good and God, therefore, shouldn't be a wrathful God. But put yourself in their shoes and our forefathers in the past. The Israelites were in captivity for 430 years. They were enslaved to generations of tyrants who forgot about them, who abused them who were violent against them, who were using them like they were not persons, right? Could you imagine what they were thinking? For 430 years, from generation to generation, they weren't questioning the wrath of God. They were questioning the mercy of God. Lord, why do you let these evil people continually letting them go? Why do you forgive them again and again? Why would you not destroy them now, Lord? Why are you so merciful? They didn't have the problem of God's justice, they had the problem of God's mercy. And therefore, could you imagine, after 430 years, they were finally liberated by this God, the sovereign one, and their captives, they, they, were, they were now, what? They were destroyed. All those people that were tyrannical over us, they could not overcome our God. Finally, we had won. Imagine yourself being a, a prisoner in the Holocaust, and the Allied forces finally won and overcame your enemies. You wouldn't be crying out, why would you do this? You'd be saying, finally, we can't help but celebrate. Or you don't have to look too far. You could just watch Taken. And you're not going to have a problem with Liam Neeson single-handedly taking down sex traffickers because he took his daughter away. 
you say, justice is finally being done, right? And that's the problem with us. We don't believe that we're bad people. We believe that we're basically good. And hence, we have a problem with God's wrath. But friends, the problem that the Bible presupposes is the problem of God's mercy. Why should a loving and just and powerful God be merciful to wretched sinners like us? Because ultimately, friends, we're not any different than them. And precisely, this is, this, this is exactly why we could be patient when things go against us. Because we know that God is the judge, that it's God's hand that would commit vengeance. We could be patient. I don't know what my enemies deserve. I know that I'm no different from my enemy. I know I'm not the God of the universe. It's not my right to punish them. I don't have the wisdom to know what exactly they deserve. I'm going to leave it up to God. And because I believe in a just God, I can therefore be patient. So worshiping a just and powerful God doesn't make you violent. It makes us patient. And if you don't believe in this God, it makes you violent because there's no one there to pay back your rights. Then take the matters up with your own hands. You see that? This is why the Israelites could therefore exult in this deliverance that they have. Finally, they were freed. God was indeed faithful and powerful enough to save them. So that's why they sang, right? They sang in celebration. They sang about God's justice, God's vengeance, God's wrath against these evil, tyrannical people and their final deliverance, right? So if that's why they sang, what did they sing about? What's the actual content of this song? Well, there are four subpoints under the second point. What did they sing about? Four things I want us to notice here. And we can't cover every single thing, but some highlights here from this passage. Four things, four subpoints under the second point. The first subpoint is that this psalm, this song, is about God. And you're like, well, that's obvious. This is a song about God. This, that's incredibly uh, trivial, it seems like. This is, of course, a song about God. It's in the Bible, after all. But this is way more profound than we think. Look again at who is the main subject, who's the main actor and hero in this passage. Verse 6, it's your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, which shatters the enemy. Verse 7, again, in the greatness of your majesty, overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury at the blast of your nostrils. It goes on, right? So over and over again, this psalm is merely describing what God had done. It's seeing the people of Israel simply as being passive recipients caught up to what God has done. They are losing themselves in simple theological praise and description. They can't help it. And so the emphasis is all on God as the main actor and not on us. And you might again think that that's obvious, but, but notice this is exactly what makes Christian worship distinct. Christian worship is distinct from any kind of religious general, general religiosity. Christian worship says that we worship because God has done something, not because we are doing something. Christian worship says God is the one who's the hero, and I'm not. I'm, I'm merely benefiting from what God has done. And so everything that we do just points to God. There's a God-centeredness and not a man-centeredness to our worship, right? And so it's so crucial that this is where the emphasis lies in our songs, there's a huge distinction between an emphasis on God and an emphasis on us. A huge distinction between an emphasis on a chorus that simply repeats, I could sing of your love forever, again and again and again. And an emphasis that says, Lord, your love endures forever. Your love endures forever. I can't sing of your love forever, but you keep me going. You are the one whose love endures forever. I can't do it. And this is not just a norm for our worship songs. 
such that our songs have to exult in God, this is supposed to be the norm for our sermons. You know, recently I was listening to a sermon at a chapel for theological students, and I was really frustrated in my seat because as I was listening to the sermon, uh, the preacher's whole point was that we have to offer ourselves up to God. And you can't offer other people up to God. So don't focus on them. Focus on yourself and what you could do for God. Offer your whole self to God. Everything about you from the inside out. Dedicate your life to God. And the whole time I was just waiting, waiting. When is the gospel going to come? Oh, preacher, I know that I'm supposed to offer myself to God. But I can't do it. I've tried. You don't have to tell me that I need to be a good person. I know. You don't have to tell me that I need to serve God. I know. That's not my problem. I, don't, I know of God's commands, and I tremble. So I was waiting. Point me to Jesus. <laughs> tell me that it's him, and he's given himself all to God, and I could therefore benefit from his substitutionary atonement. Point me to Jesus, and it just never came. That was the whole point of the sermon. Give yourself to God. And I was just writhing in my seat, and I ended in despair. Right? And I was thinking to myself, friends, that wasn't a sermon. That was a motivational talk that happened to have a few Bible verses in it. That's not a sermon because a sermon is supposed to worship God. A, a, a Christian worship song is supposed to worship God. It's not about you. It's about God. You know, Francis Chan says, a visitor once visited his church and said, I didn't really enjoy worship today. And Francis Chan said, well, that's fine because we weren't worshiping you. So in a sense, it doesn't matter how you feel. Of course, we want to invite you into God's presence. Of course, we want to invite you to the joys of worshiping God. But friends, this is worshiping God and not about us. And hence, sermons and, 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 and songs, they might quote the Bible, but they might not be biblical. And a sermon and a song must make God at the center of everything or else it's not a sermon and it's not a worship song. All right? First obvious point, this is about God. Make him the subject and the actor of all your songs, of all your preaching, of all your sermons. Demand that, right? So that's the first point, the first sub-point, sorry, of the second point. The second sub-point is that this, this text, this song, talks about God's sovereignty over all of creation, God's control over all of God's creation. This is seen in verses 8, verse 10, and verse 12. Notice what it says. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. And then, verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Now, I want you to notice, therefore, that there is a direct correlation, you see, a direct correlation between what God does and what nature does. If God says the winds will now blow, the winds blow. If God says the sea will part, the seas part. If God says the sea will now come back and swallow them up, the seas will come back and swallow them up, right? In other words, all of creation moves according to the very will of God, you see. Now, this is also going against some very popular ideas out there. You know, I, I make uh, my online students at Westminster Seminary read for their apologetics classes a couple of articles by a, a, a scientist named Lawrence Cross, and he wrote a Wall Street Journal article and a, and a New Yorker article. And both of these articles, his argument was, um, scientists must be militant atheists. 
Okay, that's a bold statement, right? So why does he say that? He says that because the world is a self-enclosed system. The natural world is fixed. It's, it's, it's regulated by natural laws, right? It's an impersonal universe. And if there's a God, he might mess with it. But science depends upon the regularities of natural law. And if God could intervene and violate it, then we can't really observe because there would be no regularity. That's his basic argument. But notice there that he's actually smuggling in some thick assumptions there, isn't he? He's, he's presupposing that nature just kind of runs on its own like a, like a watch or a machine or something. And if God created it, he would just left it alone and it's simply running on its own. And God's miracles, well, that's just like an interruption in this machine, this otherwise self-enclosed machine, right? Uh, almost like it's a thunderbolt and then God leaves again, you see. Well, that's not how the Christian God operates at all. That's not how the, the Bible presents God and the world at all. The world, according to the Bible, is not a self-enclosed system where God has to intervene in it. No, the world, all of its natural laws are simply the product of God's ordinary providences. All of God's ordinary providences is what accounts for all the regularities that you see. The law of gravity, in other words, isn't an impersonal law. You're simply observing the personal, ordinary actions of God. Why is it then that when you walk on water, you sink? Because God has regulated water to be that way, and you would be heavier than the water, right? Why is it that you get hungry? Why is it that your heart beats the way that it does? These are God's ordinary means of providences. But then notice the universe is not impersonal. It's not a machine. It's personal. And so a miracle, friends, with the parting of the Red Sea, it's not God suddenly coming in and violating something natural, something that is otherwise self-enclosed. No, this is God's extraordinary work. There's no violation here. When God says that the, red, that the seas would be stable, it's going to be stable. And when God says that it will part, it's going to part. So that a miracle is not a violation of natural law. A miracle is simply an extraordinary act of God. And all natural laws are really the personal acts of the ordinary providences of God. And that's why, therefore, there's no violations that are needed, right? And, and that's what scientists presuppose. They're actually studying the regular activities of God's providence. And so in the Westminster Confession of Faith that you read today in statement in, in chapter 5, it says that God directs, upholds, and, and sustains absolutely everything. That if God were not active, everything would cease to exist. And in the same way, this passage is saying God is totally sovereign over every facet of creation, then the reason why the seas were stable and then they were not was simply because God decided that they would not be stable at that point. That's a biblical understanding of God's actions in nature. Now, therefore, the third subpoint kind of follows from that. Stick with me. The third subpoint is found in verse 11. After establishing that all of nature is under the control of God, the, the, the psalm here says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So what's this text saying? Uh, this third subpoint is pointing to the singularity of God. The singularity of God. Now, the singularity of God is an old technical theological term that describes passages like this that says that God does not belong in a class and God does not belong in a genus. Well, what do I mean by that? There is no distinction in God between class and subset, or between genus and species. 
Okay, stick with me, all right? So that there is nothing you could compare God to because he is a class on his own, right? If you were talking about, well, who could you compare Gray to? Uh, could you compare Gray to Tazar? Then of course you could compare me to Tazar because we're both subsets under the class humanity. And so I'm comparable to every other human being, like you and me, right? There's something to compare me with because I'm a species of a genus, humans, right? I'm not talking biologically, I'm talking theologically here. So if you're a biologist and you have trouble with my genus species thing, well, we can talk afterwards. But this is a theological category. So in other words, what this passage is saying is, Lord God is not just above everything else or above creation or above all the other lords in terms of degree. God is utterly distinct. This is not, God is not higher in terms of quantity. God is higher in terms of quality. There's a difference in being altogether. God is a class of his own set apart. He is sui generis. That's the old term. He is a kind of his own. In fact, he doesn't belong in a kind because there is nothing like God. He's totally set apart. You can't compare him to everything else because everything else is utterly unlike God. And this is what the holiness of God means. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Holiness assembly means you're set apart. God is set apart from everything else. And it's not as if God and Pharaoh are two lords in the same class, Lord, and then God just happens to be the higher Lord. No, God's lordship is utterly different from Pharaoh's. They're not even in the same spectrum. That's what this passage is saying, friends. And so this is why, by the way, we follow the second commandment. What is the second commandment? You shall have no images of God. Why? Because there can be nothing in creation that could be a mirror of God. There's nothing in creation that is like God that could be a representation of God. That's why you won't see images of God here, hopefully, never. So anyway, so that's the third sub-point. This is the singularity of God. God is a cut above the rest. He's Lord over all creation. But notice the fourth sub-point. The fourth sub-point is that this singular God, this God who is a class on his own, is still committed, nonetheless, to a people different from him. He condescends to be with them. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary or, or the worship space, O Lord, which your hands have established. And notice this is still in the future, right? They had just gone through the Red Sea. They are not yet at the mountain. They're not yet at Mount Sinai. They don't yet have a temple or a tabernacle. But yet, it's kind of predicting the future, in a sense, it's saying here, Lord, you're faithful in the past and you will continue to be faithful to us in the future. Because of what you've done here, we will worship you in the future. How do we know that we'll worship you? Because you yourself would sustain us and cause us to persevere and ensure that we will end up in that holy place in the mountain of God worshiping you so that our future is assured because of God's acts himself, right? So those are the four subpoints. This song is about God. This song is about God's sovereignty over all things, creation. And this song is about God's uh, uh, singularity. And this song is about God's, with his people, commitment to them. And this fourth sub-point leads us naturally to the third and final point of our sermon. The songs backwards and forwards. Notice how God's commitment to God's people is ensuring the future. You will place us in your holy abode. You will place us in the sanctuary, Right? Now, therefore, there's a sense in which this psalm is pointing us backwards, saying to us, 
Well, because God has done this to the Egyptians, to your enemies, taking them as if they were his own enemies and destroying them, because you've seen how God has taken care of your greatest problem, you know that your future is secure. How can we have assurance of the future? In other words, well, look to the past and see what God has done. And so I want us to see this. It's very, very clear in this passage. There's a distinction from verses 1 to 12 and then verses 13 to 15. Sorry, 1 to 13 and then 14 to 15. There's a gap between verses 1 to 13 on the one hand and verses 14 and 15 on the other. Verses 1 to 13 is all about God destroying Pharaoh and the Israelites. The Egyptians were destroyed. Pharaoh is no longer the Lord, right? They're not powerless, so that happened in the past. So verses 1 to 13, because it's talking about the destruction of Pharaoh, is in reference to the past. But notice in verse 14 and 15, there's a shift away from Egypt and the past and a shift towards other enemies. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. The peoples there are referring to the nations. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, not Egypt. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembled, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Well, that's interesting, right? Because technically, all of these countries, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Cana, they're still there. They're still powerful. Uh, there's still uh, looming threats ahead of them in the future, right? They weren't destroyed when Egypt was destroyed. There are still threats in the future. But this psalm in verse 14 and 15, in reference to Israel's future enemies, is talking about them in the past tense. As if Israel's victory over them, these enemies too, is secure. Even though, of course, from their perspective, they're still looming, right? Uh, uh, David was fighting Goliath. Who was Goliath? He was a Philistine. The Israelites were still afraid of them at that point, right? And when the Israelites finally uh, crossed the Jordan and they were about to enter Cana, they were intimidated by the Canaanites because they were so big. They said that they were like giant grasshoppers, right? They were terrified of these nations. But in this song, even though the nations are still future, they're still dangerous, they're still out there, they're singing as if they're as good as destroyed too. Why? Because they could look back to what God has done to Egypt, their greatest enemy, and then they could look forward and say, because God has done this, and he's, he's dealt with my greatest enemies, anything that is future, any future enemies I have, the world, temptations, the devil, I will face them and I can face them. And you see, friends, isn't that what the Christian could say too? Doesn't the Christian say, Lord, because you've taken care of my greatest enemy, my own sin, the punishment that I should bear, the wrath of God itself, because you have taken care of that in Christ Jesus, he took my place. And I could look upon the past and upon the cross. I can then look forward, can't I? And say, any future enemies that I have, I can now face. And so the Christian too can look forward in, and, 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 sorry, look backward and then look forward and say, my future enemies can be vanquished too. And so friends, this psalm isn't just about the Israelite exodus. It's about you and me too, isn't it? Don't you notice that everything that this psalm says and everything that the Israelite could say at this point, every Christian could say too. As a pastor once said, you know, everything the Israelite says is exactly a replica a shadow pointing to what everything you would say as a Christian. What's the Israelite saying at this point? The Israelite who's been redeemed out of the Exodus? What's the Israelite saying? He's saying what? 
I was a slave under a tyrant. I was saved through judgment by a blood of a lamb. God provided a substitute. I passed through the waters of baptism into a new community. I'm going to walk with this community unto the promised land. And until I get to the promised land, how do I know that my God's for me? I'm going to eat the bread that comes from heaven, manna. And I'm going to look to my mediator, Moses. That's how I know God's still for me, even though I'm waiting to get to the promised land. That's what the Israelites are saying. And what is the Christian saying? What would you say, O Christian, about your own testimony? I was a slave under a tyrant. My sin. I was saved through judgment by a substitute, the blood of the lamb, but not the mere blood of animals like bulls and goats and lambs. No, the greater lamb of God, Jesus Christ. God provided the substitute and he passed over me in judgment. I walked through the waters of baptism and I entered a new community. And with this new community, I'm traveling through the wilderness to the final promised destination, the promised land. Not just a small plot of land called Cana, but the new heavens and the new earth. How do I know that I'm going to last? How do I know that God is still for me as I travel there? I'm going to eat the bread that comes from heaven, the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to look to my mediator, the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, this is your song too. This is the song of every Christian. The story of the Israelites is your story too. And not only is the song of the Exodus yours, but the song of judgment could be yours too, right? Uh, turn your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Peter 3, verses 5 to 7. And we'll close in this. 2 Peter 3, verses 5 to 7. 2 Peter 3, verses 5 to 7. This is talking about the future judgments that comes from God. And, and it's talking about unbelievers who are denying that there will be a future judgment. For they, this is verse 5, they, the, the unbelievers... The unbelievers deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or covered with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now that's a lot there, but basically all it's saying is, Friends, the world has been recreated by God. A community of God's people had been saved by God through water multiple times. He first did it in the flood. There was a judgment by water. A community of God traversed through the water, baptized through water, and entered into a new world, a promised land, so to speak. And he did that in the Exodus. There were the people under sin, just like the people of Noah were under sin, and then they were rescued through water, anticipating a final destination, Cana, but in the future, there will be another, greater judgment. But this time, he's not going to bring God's people through a lake of water, but through a lake of fire. And this fire is either going to fall on us because of our sins, or it's going to fall onto our substitute who is in Christ Jesus, such that we, who are now in the ark of the body of Christ, could pass through this waters, not water, sorry, the sea of fire, and go through the other side, and we too would sing the song of God's wrath and justice, won't we? We too could sing, O oh Lord, with your right hand, you've delivered us from all of our enemies. O oh Lord, you've shattered them all. The world, the devil, our own flesh, 
and Satan himself. No longer an earthly ruler, but a spiritual tyrant. Oh, friends, rely on this song. That this is not just about the Israelites. This is about who you could be in Christ Jesus. Be in him in the final days so that you could pass through the lake of fire in safety. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided the substitute that the blood of somebody else has covered our sins and there, therefore we can walk through any waters of judgment, any fires of judgment, Father, no longer afraid but boldly through. So, Father, help us rely on this and as we get there, Father, as we travel to the final day through the, the, the raging fires of destruction, assure us that you are with us as we partake of this bread and the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.